Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Ned Baker, and I don't know if I'm in a drama or a comedy. And I'm Caroline Sita, and I like audio fiction. Auto fiction. Auto fiction, is that what she calls it? Yes, auto fiction. That that's what I like. Yeah. You know, Caroline, I almost <laughs> did that as my intro, so I got really worried you were gonna do it actually. And normally I come up with a backup in that scenario, but I didn't this time, so it all worked out. Here we go. It always works out he said, manifesting. So the way that this podcast works out is that Caroline and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries starring an actor we love. Today, that actor is Antonio Banderas, and we are finishing up a series that has included shootouts, sword fights, musical numbers, and a lot of very different but all extremely hot looks. <laughs> Looking at the 1990s, we covered Desperado, Evita, and Mask of Zorro, and before that, in the 80s, we looked at Antonio's collaborations with Spanish director Pedro Almodovar, the creative relationship that defined his early film career. In our episode on Time Me Up, Time Me Down, we also spent some time on Labyrinth of Passion, Matador, Law of Desire, and Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. And today, we return, as Antonio did, to that collaborative pairing to discuss 2019's Pain and Glory, to discuss in what ways that film mirrors their previous collaborations and in what ways it breaks new ground. And to do that, we're joined today by our dear friend and longtime friend of the podcast, whom we've just been very eager for a while to have on. I'm so glad it's finally working out. Please welcome teacher, actor and singer, and film enthusiast, Will Cosda. Welcome, Yay! Will. Hello, hello. Will, I feel like you've been our, like, white whale of a guest. Like, we've been oh. wanting to have you on the show for so long, but we've been waiting for just the right film for your your cinema-loving brain to chew on. Oh, my God, Caroline. You can't just tell people they're a white whale. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm a pretty white whale. Um, but thank you. I'm honored. Longtime listener, first time caller. Thrilled to be here. Yeah. Um, also, uh, I just want to shout it out. This is the third History Boy that we've had <gasps> on the show. We're collecting them all. It's happening. Look out, rest of the History Boys. Another. We're really just flipping through our yearbook of like college theater friends and slowly <laughs> bringing them all onto the show. Yes, and that's been a delight so far, and I'm so glad to have you here, Will. So, yeah, before we jump into uh, Pain and Glory, I figured I would take a little look, because as I mentioned, we, we talked 80s movies, we talked 90s movies, and there's about 20 plus years of movies in there that we haven't really that we're not really focusing on. And I think when we go through some of the highlights of that, we'll sort of see why. Um, the 21st century was probably not as strong IMO for uh, Antonio Banderas. Before we jump into the history, can we actually ask Will what his general Antonio oh, yeah. Banderas thoughts are? Yeah, please tell us. Like, I mean, I'm, pr I'm pretty lacking in a lot of the core Antonio Banderas performances. Like, I think I saw it as a kid in the theaters, the Zorro sequel, but not the first mm -hmm. one. So I remember thinking, that would make oh, sense. Zorro's stupid. Um, I should give <laughs> the first shame. Yeah, I know, I know. I should give the first one a, a shot. Never saw Desperado because that was like just not my jam, shoot him up kind of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think really probably the first time I knew who Antonio Banderas was, was spy kids although i didn't see the whole thing like only part of it and then um certainly puss in boots and then the zorro sequel that's that's kind of about it i guess um 
At some point I saw Philadelphia. I feel like you're a very like true cinephile in in the like art house film sense. I don't mm-hmm. know if you agree, but I feel like I really love like and Ned and I both really love like big dumb action blockbusters, but I feel like you have <laughs> such like a really refined Film That's a taste. really nice way of putting it. I'm a film <laughs> snob, let's be real. Like when I was like in middle school, I would be on like movie award forums and stuff mm-hmm. talking about like what the critics awards went to and nerdy stuff like that. So yeah, definitely, definitely. More highbrow films are my thing. Yes. But, That's yeah. not a later in life thing for you. That's all Mm-mm. you've sort of had. Highbrow taste. Fourteen-year-old Will oh, was fun. even more of a film snob than I am now. I've kind of <laughs> come around on 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 the big blockbuster a little bit more. Uh-huh. What's but, your um, favorite like big blockbuster? Um, I mean, does Mad Max Fury Road count because it's so fucking yes, awesome? Absolutely. Um, yes. Although I do think critically, you know, that's not. That's not dumb popcorn movie. That's right. the film snobs blockbuster. Film snobs. I mean, it's a perfect so film, you know? maybe, maybe that's my favorite big movie, but I guess my favorite like dumb action movie. Ugh, I don't. I can't, nothing comes to mind. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. That's great. Had uh, you had any um, Almodovar? Like, was he somebody that you grew up watching at all? I didn't grow up watching him necessarily but in high school i saw the movie talk to her i haven't seen it since but i remember it being like devastating and wonderful and really really loving that um but yeah i like i knew of him but it was definitely kind of a hole in my cinephile um resume i guess um because the only three i've seen are pain and glory talk to her and parallel mothers which just came out last year so Mm -hmm. i have a lot of catching up on elmo dovar to do but i quite liked all three of them. I would say, if anything, the other two I'd seen, I think, are my favorite over Pain and Glory. It's my third favorite on the mm-hmm. three. It is an interesting intersection of, like, so much of Antonio's career, like, mainstream career. And I think you're going to get into this, Ned, with this weird, like, 2000s period. But it is yeah. a lot of those big, like, blockbustery movies that people mm-hmm. associate him with. And I do think it's interesting to look at, as we talked about, the 80s where he started out in the art house world and sort of where he is now, like, returning to that. Finally making movies that Will Cosda wants to go and see. <laughs> that's, his, that's his big life goal. Finally, he's yeah. he's fulfilling that. It's like, put me be, put me depressed in a swimming pool and Will Cosda will finally come and see one of my films. Yeah, yeah we just needed to oh. see Gregorio Cortez of the Spy Kids franchise depressed in a swimming pool and then maybe you would have made it through the whole... <laughs> The whole thing. Honestly. No, I mean, I mean, it's it, you know, there's, there's there's a lot of other factors in play there. But yeah, as 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 we've sort of been alluding to, if you look through the 21st century, I mean, going not entirely in order. I remember watching this movie, Ballistic X versus Sever, which I mentioned, <laughs> I think, on one of our previous ones. I remember it as not great, but looking it up today, I discovered it's something I, you don't see that often, which is literally a zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Did it actually have reviews? Yeah. And oh, they were I mean, just all bad. it's a it's a you know theatrically released blockbuster action movie. It's just extremely shit. Apparently, <laughs> I mean, I watched it you know as like a young teenager. The I love the way that I love going on Rotten Tomatoes. Whoever they have or whatever team they have that writes the little like summaries, like one sentence summaries, is just I think so good. Those little uh, distillations of the sort of like mass critical consensus which in this case was a startlingly inept film ballistic x versus sever offers overblown wall-to-wall action without a hint of wit 
coherence, style, or originality. Drag <laughs> them. Jesus. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, yeah, I totally bodied. agree, Ned, that that... I think that there are downsides to the Rotten Tomatoes, like, distillation as a number. But yeah. I do agree that however they write those little sentences is, like, so good. I hope that person gets paid a lot of money. That's a that's a dream job right there. Holy shit. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, all of us who are on Letterboxd, which is in this Zoom room, all of us, I guess we're always sort of auditioning for that role by, I'm trying to go <laughs> short with that. Will Costa, by the way, is a great follow on Letterboxd for all of Agreed. you fans oh, shucks, out there. Thanks, which, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Which is, whereas every other social media platform I'm on, I'm trying to drive people away. I'm like, Twitter sucks. I should be using it less. But Letterboxd is the only one that I actually am like, come join us in Letterboxd. I'm like fun. a total Letterboxd evangelist. Like, I've been making Instagram stories for like a year and a half, like, join Letterboxd, I need more friends. So I practically work for them. I say, Will, is your Instagram stories were among the things where I was like, oh, that looks kind of fun on there. Maybe I should check that out. Will, what's your Letterboxd handle? I think it's just my name, Will Cosda. I don't Will remember. Will Cosda, Adam. It might be Quasda. <laughs> we'll check before the recording. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. But Bef- if you search my name, you'll find Yeah, cool. So yeah, we've got things like that. We've got bad sequels to Zorro and Desperado, which we've kind of alluded to already on here. I think that like, particularly as he ages past like the guy doing the fighting in the action movies, he starts to play sort of like action movie arch villains in Haywire, mm-hmm. which I've already said I hated, Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, and then this year's Uncharted. He's basically... I haven't seen those. I'm sorry. Was there a movie called Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard? Yeah. Yes. Or was it Hitman's Bodyguard's Wife? (laughs) With Selma Hayek. Oh, one of the two. Let me see. I think it's Wife's Bodyguard. Yeah. Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's the sequel to Hitman's Bodyguard, which is one of those Ryan Reynolds, Samuel Jackson, like snarky comedies. Oh, jeez. And that one has Selma Hayek. Yes, that's right. I think she's the Hitman's Wife. Sure. And Van City Reynolds is the bodyguard. He also did Doolittle, which I think is a similar vein of blockbuster, like supporting role in a blockbuster, but you can put his name on the title. Yes. Or yeah. above the title. That seems to be the thing. I mean, his name recognition never goes away, but that doesn't always translate to people offering him what do we call like meaty parts. Mm-hmm. We get more mixed reviews in there for, uh, I mean, I mentioned The Skin I Live In, which I think is 2011. That's technically the uh, Banderas-Almodovar collaboration, which happens in between here, in between his 80s and this uh, this last film. Um, Skin I Live In, uh, without saying too much about the plot, I'll just say, like, it is so dark. It is so malevolent. Antonio Banderas plays, like, a truly heinous person. Um, God, what is wrong with me that I'm like, ooh, I want to watch that. <laughs> well, you <laughs> should like, check it out. saying I everything mean, I want to hear. It's... Like, I don't know that I'd say it's bad. I I don't know. It, it's definitely transgressive in that Almodovar kind of way. It's just grim. This is very grim. Um, not in a realistic way. Not like watching Schindler's List is grim. But it's a, it is a dark psychological thriller. Hmm. Um, kind of like the most evil take on Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, which has darkness in it. But, you know, also, I don't know at least a lot of bright colors and comedy. I mean, skin I live in is like, everything's like gray and silver and it's, and hateful. But um, he does these like TV movies and miniseries. The genius Picasso seems to get mixed reviews. Uh, the HBO movie and starring Pancho Villa as himself. 
Um, Y'all see any of these? No, but both of those got him Emmy nominations. So I do think he kind of had the path that, I mean, now is much more common, but maybe in the early, in the mid 2000s was maybe one of the pioneers of like, I'm a big movie star, I'll move over to TV and sort of get some acclaim in that realm. Caroline, is is that Pancho Villa one, is that the same as the play we read in that class freshman year of college about Latin American theater? There was at least one about Pancho Villa in there. I don't remember. Maybe it was. I do remember that class, though. That sounds like the kind of thing that would be an adaptation of a play. Yeah. Because that rings such a bell, not just, yeah, in starring Pancho Villa as himself. Maybe I'm making that up, but... I think yeah. it's just an original story, but I'm, I mean, obviously they're pulling from the same source material, I'm sure. But see, anecdotes like this, this is why this is why it's fun when we get our old college buddies on. So. <laughs> I was really relying, that Latin American theater class, I really was relying on a lot of that for the trying to mentally contextualize a Vita, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah? <laughs> sort of like, what were the politics of 20th century Latin America as filtered through a theater class i took for one quarter (laughs) so in those in the 21st century uh in that sort of like first couple years like the only project like i don't think any of the things i've just mentioned here has that many diehard fans i mean we got the my mom's new boyfriend life itself all these other things the only thing that people are really like oh antonio Banderas, will you be talking about shrek 2 or Puss in Boots. Those are really the projects that I think have a following, at least in our mm-hmm. generation. He has played uh, Puss in Boots 10 times, technically, Whoa, to date, including insane. shorts. So that's including these little, Whoa. like, you know, shorts that are probably truly only seen by people under the age of 12. Sure. Um, but, you know, the dude, I'm sure, has renovated his house on the strength of Puss in Boots, maybe a couple times over. He knows the soul of Puss in Boots. Yeah. I mean, clearly, <laughs> like, he doesn't hate playing it. I think it's, impo- it's it's totally possible he loves playing Puss in Boots. Can um, I read you a quote, actually, where he did, it was from, I think it was from a GQ interview. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how he really loves playing Puss in Boots, and part of it is because of the comedy of, he said, the comedy of the contrast of, like, you have this big voice for this little cat. Mm-hmm. But he also talked about how when he first came to work in America, and he had such a strong accent, and he was kind of blatantly told, like, you're only going to play villains, because, mm-hmm. quote, the villains here are black and Hispanic. Mm-hmm. And then he said he was, like, so pleasantly surprised to get cast for just a voice role, mm-hmm. and that the voice, you know, his his Spanish-accented voice got to be the hero in this kid's franchise, and how that was, he thought, was a really positive thing to sort of, like, put out there for kids to see at this really young age and hear accents presented like heroically. So I think he does actually feel quite an affinity to the the Puss in Boots oeuvre. Damn. That's actually so sweet. I had <laughs> We got any Shrek 2 fans in the chat right well, now? I, I watched that a couple days ago just in case <gasps> we would um, bring that up as well. And that holds up. I don't think I'd seen it, it since it was in the theater and I was like, oh, for an animated sequel... This has got a lot going on, and it doesn't feel so stupid. It was it was really fun. How was Dear Antonio in it? Just Puss in Boots as a character? Uh, yeah, he's wonderful. He he is exactly Zorro. So, or at least mm-hmm. the, the stereotype <laughs> of Zorro that you would think of. That's all it is. But he's very. It's 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 kind of strange though because he's a cat that um is an like an ass- hired assassin, but like immediately decides. You know what? I'm not going to assassinate you. Now I'm going to be on your team and switches switches sides. <laughs> so it's like a, a very abrupt. Change and at one point he. I'm really curious if Antonio did his own 
hairball hacking sounds because <gasps> you have this big, long, extended hairball hacking joke. And I'm like, good God, he's really digging in there. I think it's probably him. I don't know. I could see Antonio being like, I've, I'm have i going to take this and run with it. <laughs> I just imagine him in the in the studio. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Just this distinguished he does actor. seem committed. I would not be surprised. Yeah. And he clearly has a zeal for doing like the silly stuff. That I yes. think is something that his 21st century stuff has shown. Like yeah. the dude likes clowning around. He has a lot of fun in that in Shrek 2. It's, it's very, very silly. I remember enjoying the Shrek movies. I saw them both in the, the first two. I don't, I think I didn't stick around after number two, mm-hmm. but I remember liking them, seeing them in theaters. I feel like Shrek 2 is actually kind of unique in that it's like an animated sequel that's also a big deal. Yeah. I feel like that doesn't happen so often. And that you have this like breakout character in an animated sequel that then goes on to be his own thing. Like it does feel a little bit unique to me. Yeah. I guess like the minions or whatever is kind of a parallel. <laughs> yeah, the minions, I mean, yeah, the minions are a cultural force as well. Um, but but yeah, I mean, clearly like Puss has staying power. There is no doubt that we cannot just call him Puss. That just sounds <laughs> Shrek does in the in the movie. He's he like does? Puss! Like in this big long action sequence. No, 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 no. Caroline, you got to get on board. This is this is the common parlance. <laughs> He's got to be puss and boots. We <laughs> okay. got to say the full name. Or just I can't boots. say puss has staying power. No. Well, too bad because puss is not going anywhere. Puss is I here mean, to yeah, stay. like on IMDb. That's it. <laughs> Yeah, so on IMDb, that's he's listed as Puss, not infrequently. Oh, God. There's yeah. another one coming out this year. The Puss in Boots franchise is still going strong. The big question is, when do we get the Puss in Boots Minions crossover that <gasps> we all need? Oh, mean? my God. Uh, not long, Will. I'm sure not long. Yeah, I watched the Puss in Boots solo, the first Puss in Boots solo movie in the past few weeks. It's uh, It's all right. It's a little <laughs> weird. It's got some fun surprises to it. There's like this very like it's this sort of like weirdly intense like interpersonal heist movie where they give him this whole like brothers for life narrative with the Humpty Dumpty who's voiced by Zach Galifianakis and they're like stealing the magic beans and uh, Salma Hayek is in there as a sexy cat named Kitty Softpaws and he says there is one word for you Kitty Softpaws me wow so. <laughs> A lot of that. That's funny. It's a solid line. Yeah. You know what's weird? Because that fir- that first Puss in Boots movie came out in 2011. There's probably a whole generation of kids who grew up on the Puss in Boots movie with potentially no connection to the Shrek franchise. Yeah. Or maybe not. Maybe you go in, you just the Shrek movies are still alive and well. But it seems just like timing wise, if one of those Puss in Boots movies is coming out this year, that's quite a lot of generational staying power. Yeah. Totally. Particularly when you think about the weird mixed up ways in which kids watch movies. And I always think of just like me watching the last Star Wars movie first as a kid. Because like, I mean, unless your parents, maybe nowadays the current generation of parents will be more like, I don't know, obsessed with like viewing order and like universes and things. But <laughs> you have to respect the Puss in Boots universe. It is. <laughs> yeah. And- <laughs> do we do the machete order for the Puss in Boots franchise? Right. The Shrek cinematic universe. Um, I mean, you know, technically Puss in Boots is a prequel to Shrek, so it would not be inappropriate to watch that one first. Whoa. So this is like, do you watch it in linear order? Do you watch it in a release order or chronologically? It totally 
affect your experience of the movies. So yeah, <laughs> if you're one of those freaks who watches Captain America first and the whatever, that doesn't that doesn't really matter. Um, I think the new movie looks dope. I watched a trailer for it. It looks like it's kind of got into the Spider Verse animation and. And Florence Pugh plays Goldilocks, and she's like, "Oh, that's good casting." Like, around, yeah, I'm, I'm, I might go see it. We'll see. Should we do a special bonus episode <laughs> on the Puss in Boots three? I mean, let's uh, not to put too much stock in Rotten Tomatoes. Let's see how the critical consensus takes it, and then we'll go from there. Can I also throw out the other, I think, defining mm-hmm. role for Antonio Banderas in the two thousands is the Nasonex B. <laughs> The the animated bee that advertises the medicine Nasonex. Nasonex. I'm saying it in his accent. Nasonex. As soon as you said that, I can like hear it. And oh, I don't. I don't think I ever made that connection. Yeah, it's Antonio Banderas. Just had. I mean, talk about money coming in. It's just like a clumsily animated bee. I don't. Couldn't even tell you what Nasonex does. (laughs) Maybe allergies or something because he's a bee. But yeah, he was there. Another this is, this iconic is voice performance. Me. You don't know the Nason XB? No, and I cannot help thinking of how I kind of had to have Activia explained to me. I don't <laughs> yeah. know. Maybe I'm just uh, you're just out of commercials. Maybe that would be that would be a fortunate thing if I really was. I mean, you haven't seen the Kristen Wiig being Jamie Lee Curtis with the Activia yogurt on SNL, where she shits her pants. Well, I have now. Oh, okay. You know, look. Once we did the series, <laughs> well, it was brought to my attention, but I, I hadn't seen it prior to that. <laughs> This has been the podcast. Caroline and guest explain commercials to Ned. <laughs> Hang on. You're telling me they're like small movies that happen in holes during the television? I don't understand. Yeah, nailed it. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if I would call that as iconic a role, but, you know, everybody's experience is different, you know? <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. Um, but these things uh, happen. They go in for years and years. And in 2019, we get pain and glory. So to bring it back to that, um, I hope that any of our, if we have any like diehard Almodovar fans who just found this podcast, if they've just been like tearing at their hair listening to us They've enjoyed 30 minutes of Shrek 2 discussion. (laughs) How, what, what are our all, what are our relationships to Pain and Glory? Like, uh, I think I know that all of us, this was a rewatch. And Will, I think I know by now it's your third favorite uh, Almodovar film. But, uh, but Will, can you tell us about uh, your relate your history with this movie? Yeah, um, I mean, I watched it probably as soon as it was available for streaming, whenever it came out. Or I don't remember if I saw it in the theaters or not. But I saw it because it was getting Oscar buzz, or maybe even had been already mm-hmm. nominated by then. So that was late 2019 or early 2020. Right before the whole COVID thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I remember liking it, but kind of being a little underwhelmed by it. And so this rewatch, I definitely think it gelled a little more for me. I think I liked it a little better this time. Um, but yeah, I would still call it my third favorite out of the three Elmo Dovar movies I have seen. Caroline? I definitely saw it in the theater. So I think I saw it at the Century Cinema, the landmark Century Cinema Theater where I like to go. It's down the street from me. Love it. Love that theater. I had a, an experience that I always enjoy having with movies with this one where I saw it and I was like, yeah, that was good. And my initial reaction was kind of like, that was good. There were some scenes I really loved. It didn't feel like super impactful. And then this movie has stuck with me so deeply. Like, I hadn't rewatched it until this weekend, but I it was a movie that just like so stuck in my mind, which I think is sometimes how I can delineate 
Sometimes I think your initial reaction to a movie is not does not end up being what your reaction is in the long run. And this, I think, was the peak example where if I had had to like review it immediately, I probably would have given it sort of a, you know, a, a lukewarm review, maybe. But it has like so stuck with me and the colors of it and the feeling of it and the romance in particular of it uh, has just really stuck with me. And I found it so rewarding to rewatch as well. And I'm just really I really, really dig this movie. I think it's great. I had a very similar experience, although I definitely watched it on streaming uh, during the first year of COVID. So it took me about a year to get to it. Um, But I would similarly say, as we all feel, that it hit me. I I think I enjoyed it quite a lot the first time. I felt it stuck with me, and it hit me quite strong when I watched it today. I think that maybe has to do with the fact that the movie, like many really great films, doesn't immediately kind of declare exactly what it's going to do story-wise. Mm-hmm. And frankly, this has been true for all the Almodovar films we've talked about. Um, but it doesn't really have what you would call a traditionally forward-driving plot structure. Uh, it kind of, I think I've used the word, it meanders. And the first time you're watching a movie, I think you're totally right, Caroline, that first impressions, I mean, it would be insane if we expected critics to watch movies twice uh to do that i try to when i can but it is not often i know you do i i mean yeah i think it's that that would be an onerous demand but you know it's like i i think of actually what i've been to the one time i went to a whiskey tasting and they're like you have to do your third sip because the first one your tongue is just like burning with alcohol and the second one you're starting to get it and the third sip you can actually taste what's going on there so in order to taste more than one whiskey you have to have at least six shots of whiskey (laughs) <laughs> well you don't have to take shots but i think you can sip yeah tiny sips even but they're like let Will's it roll mine just went tongue. right to full. Like, i don't understand full you shots. actually don't yeah you gotta yeah you're just knocking back uh, um but but i do think like when you are watching a movie for the first time your brain is focusing on like trying to just process even what it is and like, what's it going to be? And with this movie, I feel like in the beginning, you spend the first half hour being like, oh, I think I get it. It's a movie about his like fraught relationship with this actor. And it is for a time, but that plot kind of resolves and then it moves away. And then that guy doesn't even like appear really in the second half of the film. I think watching it the second time, knowing what it's going to be, I was able to just sort of enjoy those various story threads and all these little moments and just kind of dig into this central character, Salvador Mayo, who Antonio Banderas plays, which I think is, I have anything I can say right now, such a good performance of such an interesting and subtle character. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I was a, I was a huge fan of this movie. For sure. Well, Ned, I wonder too if part of the reason you and I had such strong second reactions is because we spent so much time in our our second episode of the series, our our Almodovar special, like digging into Almodovar's life, sort of more than we've done with any previous director, I think, because he did all of those films with Banderas and Pain and Glory is essentially, I mean. Amodavar said it's not like literally autobiographical, like it's not every element is exactly what happened in his life, but it is essentially autobiographical. He literally Down to the hairstyle. Antonio Banderas is yeah. He's <laughs> yeah, has his hairstyle. In interviews, you're like, oh my god, it's Salvador yeah. Mike. They look exactly the freaking same. But even down to Antonio Banderas is literally wearing 
Almodovar's clothes. And <laughs> really? the apartment that go. he lives in, yeah, the apartment that he lives in is styled as, like, basically they almost essentially recreated Almodovar's apartment and, like, would bring in some of his art and his particular... He's got really good uh, taste because you know, his Chomsky's. apartment is yeah. just... Right? Oh, delicious. Oh, the colors yes. and the... Yeah, the, the style of this movie is really good. And I agree that this that's just one aspect that calls back we talked so much about the 80s movies, about this amazing, like, it was a little more, like, outlandish, new wave, punky version of this, but it was still these, like, beautiful jewel tones. And this is just really, like, the subdued, mm-hmm. you know, late-in-life version of all the things we got in there. Well, and a director looking back on this crazy counterculture 80s career he had, right? Like, mm-hmm. he is, he's essentially present-day... Almodovar reflecting back on his entire career. There are layers upon layers of why yeah. I find this to be a really satisfying movie for us to do as our final as our final episode in this series. But yeah, all these little, just on this watch, um, it, it was discussed in our first Almodovar episode that you know the ways in which he can be like an extremely uh, exacting director who kind of has very specific things he wants from his characters and like it can be very controlling about how he tries to get them to just deliver what he has in mind so to have learned that during this podcast series and then see those scenes where he's like i fell out with alberto because i had the character that i'd written and he never gave me the performance that i wanted that son of a bitch but i don't hold any grudges Mm -hmm. um it just feels like (laughs) except i won't talk to him yeah it's just all of it feels very much like oh now we have all of these rich layers but i I mean even the first time i watched it i found it to be an interesting portrait Mm -hmm. of an interesting person for sure but there's just a lot going on there now and yeah no matter which interview you pull up it is very clear that it's somewhere between some inspiration from his life and a lot of inspiration from his life. I mean, he says that he wrote it, the first scenes of this movie, through pain while he was recovering from back surgery. He was talking in one interview about, like, the first peaceful moment he had after back surgery was floating in this water where there was no gravity pulling on the tension of his back. And he, like, it suddenly took him back to women washing clothes by the riverside. So I think it's pretty clear that he was sort of, like, answering the call of... I don't know, his own mental processes mm-hmm. while going through this and has distilled it into, I think, a pretty solid circumspect self-portrait. And if I can add another meta layer onto all of this, um, Antonio Banderas actually had a like a minor heart attack in January 2017. I think that they like caught it really early. So I don't know the medical terms, but he said it was like, it wasn't serious, hadn't caused any major damage. He had a Uh, surgery to put stents in but he said that that was obviously a a big sort of like mind change for him there was this is i think actually why he goes on to buy the theater that we talked about last week ned he's like he Hmm. said something like he realized that money is just a machiavellian intellectual process basically and so i used it spent it and i bought a theater in my hometown (laughs) so he has this whole sort of you know new relationship to life new relationship to pain and illness and he's he goes on to make this movie where he's re-collaborating with his old collaborator and playing someone who is going through kind of like an ongoing health crisis and a reckoning with his creative process so they're like you're saying like layers upon layers but then also like upon layers ogres have layers that's right right. you see it's all connected it's all one big uh one big uh 
uh, ogre-like onion there. Um, so, yeah, I feel like we could just sort of talk through some of the various chapters or, like, threads of this movie, because they all mm-hmm. interweave, uh, and and it kind of rises and falls. But, um, like, I mean, let's just, maybe I'll just start, I mean, because if there's no, like, uh, intuitive order, what really jumps out from this movie? Or is there a thread that most stands out? I have a clear answer, and I suspect it may be the same for y'all. Can I just lay out just for people that don't quite remember that Please. it's so so it's Antonio Banderas playing Almodovar playing Salvador Mayo is the character's name and there's sort of I would say like three main interludes there's one with this old uh like previous collaborator he he had who could be like an Antonio Banderas stand-in a stand-in mm-hmm. for many people there's like a sequence with an old lover that he reconnects with um and then there's kind of like a sequence where he's dealing with health issues and also sort of reconnecting with his we're seeing flashbacks of his last days with his mom uh throughout the entire movie there's also flashbacks to him as a kid and his mom played by penelope cruz and then one of the main through lines fantastic in this movie so good Mm. and the other main through line is his sort of like as he's grappling with this like chronic pain he sort of starts to do heroin to try to self-manage the pain and just deal with the depression of feeling like he sort of can't be a director anymore because he isn't physically able to sort of sort of be on set. Um, so that's the general setup. But yeah, I'm curious to know both of your favorite elements of it. I mean, for me, I just kind of said how Penelope Cruz was amazing to me in this movie. To me, those were the most like impactful scenes, even before I knew should we spoiler alert this that um yeah, the very yeah, last scene fine. with penelope cruz as the mom it kind of backs away and you find out that it's not like a real life memory it's a his movie that he's making about his mother because he's finally able to work again um mm-hmm. so that kind of retroactively makes you rethink all of those previous scenes before it which already to me were were so definitely the most interesting part to me so i i thought the relationship with his mother and thinking about how she kind of influenced him was the the one continuous thread through all these kind of separate vignettes it's really cool i i think it's a movie that sort of constantly defies distillation down into like one sort of straightforward idea like i mean i think there's movies you could say like yeah it's about him and his abusive relationship with his mother or him and his like codependent relationship with his mother i don't know that there's like there's not one like hard leaning take on the mom she just feels like a fully realized person well because that's how it is with your mom right yeah you have complex layered feelings about your family it's not like oh my mom is this one thing you know so i i love i love that she she seemed both like a super wonderful mother caring for him but also had these moments where she was, I guess, like you're saying, a little more abusive. Well, okay, wait, that's fascinating to me that you both feel that way, because I literally only wrote down she's the world's best mom. <laughs> I really don't have, like, a negative, I don't know, I to me it was such a, that's like, I'm so excited to hear you guys talk more about that. No, let me clarify, when I say, when I mention, when I use the word abusive, I was saying, like, a movie might be sure. about an abusive, so I wouldn't say that was the case oh. here at all. Um no, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't use that term to to describe this. Do you this feel at all. like there's negative sides to it? I just feel like, like, it's not like a Mary Sue character of like, 
like just a glowing I mean particularly I'm including like the the old the portrait mm-hmm. of his mother as yeah. an old woman the 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 only negative really part of the motherhood relationship that came through for me was not in the flashbacks it was later where she seemed kind of like disappointed in him yeah. and regretful about the past and kind of making she she I don't know it seemed like she was like really laying on the guilt yeah um, I think that's Catholicism, much. baby. <laughs> Understanding this, this feels true to life. Understanding that there are there are abusive relations to the world. I would say that there are a lot of people with whom where where the the relationship seems to be like relationship is is characterized by love, and yet it's still fraught anyway. For like sure. that's that's the way that I think. That's kind of my view of what family <laughs> inherently tends yeah. to be, um, and I do think. You see his pain in a moment in one of the late scenes where he says, like, I'm so sorry, mother, if I disappointed you by being who I am. Like, I know yeah. when you would say, who does this right. kid take over, take after? You didn't say it entirely in a nice way. So we, we understand that, like, there is... There's tension for sure. Yeah, there's tension in that relationship anyway. But yeah, I, I think I just mean, like, the mother doesn't have, like, one gimmick uh, right. or one sort of energy that she's always bringing. She just is... Uh, Jacinta is the mother's the mother's name. She just kind of it just feels like a very honest portrait, and I think that it's one of those things where like the way the movie is structured and the way the characters are structured has the honesty that I think autofiction can bring. Where it's like in real life, people aren't as as you said, well, like people aren't one thing. They they contain multitudes, and in a story like this, I mean, I, I think obviously we understand that about real life, but some movies choose to distill for the sake of. Yeah. Uh, having the movie sort of be and say one thing and this one i think chooses to be a little harder to uh to paint like one one thread through mm-hmm. that's not that's not a i love Go on. <laughs> i love the scene i think an example of that is the scene where she she and little salvador first arrive in the new village they're moving into and the husband has come early to set up their house and it turns out it's this sort of like cave structure mm-hmm. which sidebar is I want to live there so badly. So cool. Like it's I know she was like house. so embarrassed and horrified by it, and I was like, "Girl, that's awesome!" It's so like, cool. What I love about that scene is she first gets there, and she's clearly like very thrown. Like she's like, "We're live." I think for her, from her perspective, it's sort of like a class thing. Like we're living in a cave, like we're animals, and he's he's trying to tell her like, "No, this is normal." Like a lot of people here, yeah. do that. But she's clearly very upset. And I kind of assumed that energy would continue throughout the scene and it would sort of be the like nagging or disappointed wife stereotype. But sort of once she's in there and she sees that her son's so happy, she actually like almost immediately flips to like, no, it's okay. I'm going to make it a great home. Like I'm not upset anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an example of what you guys are talking about of the, it's not just, this is the scene where she's upset or something. It's sort of very realistic of like, she did not do a good job hiding her disappointment, but then she realized she needed to get on board with the new situation and did it like so pragmatically and like optimistically. Yeah, so that's totally. that, and that is all made possible. There's a great performance by Penelope Cruz there, and then she is late in life, played by Julieta Serrano, who is in a bunch of those '80s movies. She's mm-hmm. like the the lady in pink with the guns at the end of Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. So <laughs> much more sort of restrained performance from her here, which I found very affecting because I just find old people being old people to be very emotional yeah. for me. She's very frank, especially as the older version. Mm-hmm. Kind of, I think you were saying this before, Will, but she's not like, 
I'm going to be the forgiving, self-sacrificing one. She's very blunt. Like, yeah, this is the times you disappointed me, son. And these are the realities of what it was. And I don't really want to be here. I want to be in my village. But it is what it is. And she's yeah. not she's not yeah. softening things to protect other people's feelings. Yeah. And if you ever talked with someone who's nearing the end of their life, that's very realistic to me. That's I chat with my grandma, <laughs> you know, a couple times a month. And she just lays it right out. I'm, I'm glad you remembered that line, Ned, that... um. That that was the killer line of when um, Salvador said, "I'm what was uh, something about I'm I'm sorry if I disappointed you for being who I am." Yeah, oh, that's devastating. Yeah, and I don't know. They don't. It doesn't explicitly ever uh, come up that um, that she might be uncomfortable with his homosexuality, but she was trying to send the seminary. Right. She was super super duper religious, and he's obviously super duper gay. So I'm sure that that caused a lot of uh, tension between them. Yeah, there's a lot of subtextual stuff. There's a lot of stuff that's sort of happening that you're just filling in the gaps yourself. But I totally agree that there's a whole story to be written about, yeah, the religion of it all and how that ties into being gay mm-hmm. and also being just like a counterculture, like queer filmmaker, you know, like in a very public, yeah, yeah, yeah. a yeah. public gay figure you think would be a... But at the same time, I'm I'm glad they didn't get more explicit with that. I'm glad it was just kind of an undercurrent that you can kind of pick up on because yeah. we don't we don't need it to, to be beaten over our heads yeah. with it. Yeah, the movie's doing other things with that. Although it is really interesting. There, there's a scene that I... I hadn't categorized this that way. It's a scene that I totally forgot about from the first time I watched it when he goes to buy drugs and then witnesses this sort of street altercation that seems to be like a homophobic attack where a guy attacks yeah. another guy with a machete and like slices his legs and then it kind of like breaks up with some tension. I don't know. It's just a just a that is probably the most like uncategorizable scene in the movie where I'm like, what does that go with? I think I was reading that less related to being gay and more just like the danger of buying drugs and him needing to have a source to. That was kind of the silliest, one of the silliest scenes for me. Like literally he goes to buy drugs and sees a knife fight like 10 feet away. Come on. It was a little more of the like 80s Almodovar than the rest of the tone of this movie maybe. I thought of like him getting beaten up and tie me up, tie me down. And the lady being like, you're just just a psychopath. You enjoyed it. That's one of the threads of the movie. Uh, Caroline, was that was that the is that the one that jumps out the most for you? Not that there no. has to be a hierarchy. Mine is definitely the romantic through line that comes through, which is easily the part of this movie that has stuck with me the most. It is this like so the way so the way I was thinking about the structure of this movie, like I mm-hmm. think Ned, what you were talking about earlier of like we meet an actor character, you assume he'll come back. That would be like a cyclical structure. Do you know what I mean? Like everything's kind of coming back around. But especially Mm -hmm. this time, I was really locking into (laughs) a little bit of the like ogres have layers, onions have layers structure of like, if anything, I think this is like you're peeling back layers, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like it starts and you're like, oh, it's a movie about a director and an actor. But then once Mm -hmm. that layer is peeled back, it's like, that's not what it's about at all. And then you get to the scene where it's like, oh, it's about a two lovers reuniting which i think is great but i think it also kind of even peels that back and gets further but the the like once we peel back the first exterior layer and we get to this like deeply melancholy but also deeply hopeful deeply romantic scene of these two men in their like 60s or 70s just like unexpectedly reuniting like i truly remember just being like 
fully electrified in the theater, like being like, what is this movie? Where did this come from? This is so good. Mm-hmm. How cute is that when they're on the phone and he looks out Ugh, the window and I sees him there? Even, I can't pretending even. Pretending that he's not it's right like there. It's like genuinely really one of the top five most romantic things I've ever seen in a movie, I think. He's just like on the phone. Yeah. And he kind of casually walks to the window and the the like former lover is just playing it off like, oh, I'm just calling from my house I'm or whatever. in town. He's standing outside yeah. his door. It's so sweet. Um, so I found that just like fully electrifying. And I think I wrote up that scene for the AV Club as one of the best scenes oh. of that movie year because I loved oh, it so nice. much. I would agree. Too. Yeah, I wrote on my paper, um, Federico can get it. <laughs> <laughs> also, that actor is Dude. so good. Yeah. He's yeah. so he's, good. He's amazing. Yeah, he's he's so he's so well cast in that he just I mean, yeah, I, I I'm ready to go on and on and on about that whole sequence and the way that they act it. This can be a cool thing when you watch a, a a film. I mean, it happens more frequently with foreign films when you got a whole market of actors that you might not see all the time. Mm-hmm. But these people, they don't come with the uh, semiotic baggage that our American <laughs> uh, billboard stars do. I'm like that guy. Just that's that's just that guy. Like that is yeah. a fully realized character to me. And I mean, I just I just noted the like when he says like I would remember your eyes. And uh, his eyes are like so beautiful and blue. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's he is. I mean, that's not what makes his performance great. What makes his performance great is that it's it's a great performance. But um, well, they're beautiful eyes, but also there's so much like life and excitement behind them, and he's like so in love with him still clearly. So but much. also there's like also in the eyes a little twinge of sorrow because he feels so horrible mm-hmm. about how it ended with the heroin and all that so to introduce this thread specifically for those who don't know is so as part of an earlier plot that we may discuss where he he reunites with this actor alberto and alberto reads a short story of his and is like please let me perform this uh on stage and um and salvador eventually uh lets him eventually agrees to let him do that so he's performing Alberto is performing a, an autobiographical story that Salvador wrote about a love affair he had in the 80s that ended because of addiction. And the person who the story is about, just by essentially a coincidence, ends up in the theater and has an emotional reaction and then reconnects and says, I'm here for one night. Um, let's meet up. And he says, let's meet up tomorrow at noon. And then they says, actually, and then he sees him out the window and says, why don't you come over right now? Yeah. And they have this agonizingly fleeting, but just so good and so detailed interaction in the apartment that, yeah, for me is like the beating heart of the movie. It's just like mm-hmm. so tender and charged and quiet. And I just love it. Because the setup is that they had this super intense. I mean, I think the movie kind of positions it as like love of your life situation when they were totally. both young in the 80s. And really, the only reason they were driven apart is because of Frederico's heroin addiction. And he felt he just had to leave the country to sort of get clean. And they really like the setup is that they haven't even spoken. Like when he first calls, he's like, is Salvador still alive? Like they yes. really have fully lost touch. And the scene does this whole like great thing where Federico's like oh he's like my wife and my kids and then he's like oh but I got divorced and it's like it just keeps getting you're like what's gonna happen what's like what's everyone's status of relationships right now and they don't I think they it's the right move to not sort of give them this big happy ending where they get back together but there's this like feeling of well just like love couldn't they have banged (laughs) 
Well, yeah, I think Frederico, that. that was his argument. He literally left like 20 minutes later. Ugh, I was like, come on, man. It's so, it's so agonizing. I love, I love yeah. this scene so much. They have, God, there's this moment that I kept rewatching early on when, um, Salvador says, do you want anything to drink? And, uh, and Federico says, I'll take anything. Tequila for Tavella. Mm-hmm. And then they just share this look where, like, that's basically all you get. If they says, like, let's drink tequila in honor of Tavella. And that's the only hint you get about whoever she was. He says, when I heard, when I heard her name in your monologue, it brought tears to my eyes. And you don't get any more details, but boy, do they act just like years of history. You just can feel how much like lived in history there is. I don't know what it is in the exactly in the performances or the direction that allowed them to get there. But boy does it just feel like I don't remember when on the podcast we got into this, but but we talked about the specific agony of like stories where two people belong together and they can't be together. And this story of like they as you say, like they were they were the loves of each other's lives and then they just they just separated for like their whole lives and here they get this glimpse, but uh I I, I can't even speak coherently about it all. <laughs> I'm getting like I get like electric goosebumps like thinking about the scene and how emotional it makes me. Well, I think that some of that magic might have been true for the actors too, because I found some interview where Antonio Banderas said they didn't really rehearse it that way. And that they both just like got super caught up in the emotion on the first take and that they he was kind of like, yeah, I don't know what happened. And I don't think I could ever repeat that. But it just kind of like came out in that way. Oh, my God. I know. I love that. I know. Acting so dangerous. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, there's something about the shared history and the ease of all of this time has passed, but you can just like fall back into the same rhythms with somebody and they're both so gentle, you know, like they're mm-hmm. both feel old, like they both feel their age. They're, it's not like a youthful, passionate. I think that's maybe why they kind of keep the sex out of it almost to sort of like reflect their like we're in a different stage in our life. So we're going to act differently, even if that's maybe I don't know. There's an interesting tension there. And just the way he talks about, I don't know, they're so just open with each other. You know what I mean? Like they're not. There, there's it's not a scene that's driven by like hurt right yeah it's a scene that's driven by love and i think that's such a smart choice i love when he says something like oh you were like the last man that i was with and salvador's like i really don't and, know how to that, take that like is that a compliment yeah, like my, ex- my experience with men ended with you yeah yeah, yeah. and his like i don't know how- yeah and the whole thing with like he has two sons and he maybe uh, the implication i got was he thinks maybe his oldest son might be gay or bi so he was sort of like telling him about his Frederico is telling his son about his queer experiences to like encourage him. Like if you want to be gay, yeah. go for it. Uh, it's just so sweet and loving. The only thing about this sequence is that I wish the play that he saw was better. <laughs> is that bad? I think no, the not. addiction story would have been like a beautiful short story to read. But if I was sitting in that audience, I would have been bored as fuck. <laughs> that was not a good play. It was just not. He's just sitting there talking sad. Well, maybe it wasn't well received. Maybe he just received it well because he was like, this is my life. Because <laughs> nobody else in the was, audience it, seemed quite as moved. They they weren't like bored, though. It was like a full audience and they were all like captured True. looking at him. Also, the, the, uh, the house lights were on full blast the whole time, <laughs> which I know is for our as movie viewers. He wanted us to see the audience, but like 
That would have been awkward in that theater. Truly, just, the biggest ugh. fear of my life is the house like, lights you up. You can't during... move. It's like dead silent. <laughs> yeah, it's kind Not of a good play. It's kind of hard to. It's a little, Maybe we'll maybe we'll circle back to Federico again. I have this feeling like we will. Um, but but so so it's funny. It's hard to tell like exactly what the movie makes of Alberto Crespo, the actor. Uh, I feel like I'm not sure I had the same reaction to him this time. I think all of these like funny little moments of his essentially like self interest really shown through to me this time. I mean, I find him to be a sympathetic character, <laughs> um, but I think he is a it is a it is a biting satire of the personality of actors. I think. Um, yeah, who he takes himself kind of super seriously as like a tortured artist, but ultimately is not a torture. <laughs> it is just like kind of floating along through life, chasing the dragon all the time. I wrote down the line: "I'm an actor. I'm very good at suffering," <laughs> which um, kind of kind of summed him up to me. I think there's something about that character and maybe just that performance that does not work for me. And I was wondering if maybe on a second viewing, I would get more from it, knowing more about how Almodovar works and his kind of complicated relationship with actors. But I felt the same way on a second viewing as I did on the first, where I'm like, there is something here that is off. I don't know what it is. I think it is, maybe it's just like an ill-conceived character i don't know it is it it feels like it lacks a humanity that is so prevalent throughout the rest of the movie but maybe that's what he's saying about that actor well, right? or he's maybe like... that's almodovar's like blind spot I, you know what i mean oh. like maybe he's the one that's like actors aren't human so he like can't he because i think actors are quite human even the self-indulgent you know yes. like salvador is self-indulgent as fuck but he's a very sympathetic character i think there's a way to write a self-indulgent actor who sort of has more nuance and maybe Almodovar can't quite get over that mental hurdle to see that. I don't think I had that experience quite as strongly as you did. I mean, I think, I think that there are nice touches of his ability to forgive and his ability to learn. And, you know, he's like, I think I was just struck by the, the fact today that, um, there's just a bit where Salvador, in what to me feels like a satire of a director, is like, he's giving him the permission to do the short story, and he's saying, you know, I don't want to come see it, I'm not going to do that. I have a few, a few, he gives him a few notes, including, he's like, don't just take it as an opportunity to cry, you actors just love to cry. It's always more interesting when somebody, like, fights back against the tears. And the fact that uh, Alberto, like, then makes that like a definitional thing. I mean, I guess you could say like he's just trying to like pick whatever he can to get to get the best reaction. But but I I do think like you get the impression that he is I had the impression personally this time that he is like he wants to do the work and he wants to do the work well. And yeah, he feels satirical to me. He frankly feels of a piece with some of the pompous male artists that we see in the 80s Almodovar films like the director in Time Me Up, Time Me Down, or the the mm. voice artist Yvonne in Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. So he does feel like a satire in that way. And I do think that, like, whereas some of the other characters have softened from those movies to this one, this th- this one still has some of that edge. But, but I, I don't think... I don't personally feel that it like the character doesn't work as much. Mm. Maybe and maybe I don't feel that way as strongly as you do. But um, I just feel like the movie. There's something about the first chunk of the movie that doesn't fully work for me until we get to the romance scene, and then I'm like, whoa, this is working so well. I kind of don't care how much the 
first part didn't work. Same. And I think that I think that's why the second viewing I liked it a little better because I knew what was coming mm-hmm. and can kind of sort of see the thread from the beginning. But yeah, the first time I watched it, I remember the first half hour being like, this is like silly hijinks with drugs. And I, it just, it, it, he, I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree. That's something about that. That part of it didn't quite work. I, I enjoy some of the hijinks. I like the Q&A bit where they ditch the Q&A and then do it over speakerphone and that like yeah, turns into a fight cute. between them. I'm a fan of that scene. But then he gets so mad that he basically outs him as a heroin user from the 80s as if like, I don't know, isn't it kind of obvious? <laughs> right. Everyone know that by now? Like, I, I, <laughs> it just didn't make sense to me, but well, yeah. I do feel like even the heroin, even the present day Salvador getting, or not getting addicted, but like using heroin is also kind of uninteresting to me. Less interesting than other elements, at least. Yeah, and it's like, like I know he does it for the pain, but like, and the glory. I, like, he, it's just so nonchalant when he starts. He's like, I don't know, I'm just curious. And he just, like, falls asleep. Yeah. He just continues to do that. And then, yeah. I, and, uh, yeah, I, I agree enjoyed that. That's that. Not the most interesting part. I, I enjoyed that because, for me, it just felt like another interesting part of this character of Salvador. One of the things that I wrote about Salvador, I mean, just from the very beginning this time, particularly after watching Antonio Banderas's performances, through all of these and and particularly like how a lot of what he's been called to do are so big like big 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 performances yeah. i mean watching a veto last week that's like that's huge and like it's just the the gestures and the facial expressions and all that are huge and then like the the degree to which salvador watches everything like a he has like the shyness of a child and this yeah. actually does feel to me something that I would see as a link from this film to the 80s Almodovar films where we talked about a lot of of Antonio Banderas's characters in those films as being like like man boys in arrested development these like 20 something men who were still sort of like basically adolescent in their souls and this one kind of pushes it even further as being this like 60 something man who who really feels like he kind of watches everything with the curiosity of a child. So for me, that moment where he's watching Alberto do heroin, and despite having been around it his whole life, he's just like, um, I'll try it. And then he's like, why? And he's like, uh, I'm curious. That felt to me like a character detail that I, I enjoyed how that played in to this, just seeing the way that this guy like looks at the world. But Ned, I think you have inadvertently hit on what I don't like about the Alberto character because every, so like Alberto is in some way a stand in or an amalgamation for basically for Antonio Banderas alongside sort of all of the complicated relationships that, that Almodovar had with all of his sort of main actors over the years. Right. Mm -hmm. But the way you just described Antonio, like all of the nuance and interesting and what he can bring as an actor, like Alberto should feel like that. But Alberto mm-hmm. feels like a less interesting character to me than Antonio Banderas, the real life person, when really he should be equally interesting. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, make, it makes sense, but I don't necessarily also see him as a stand-in for Antonio Banderas. I don't know. Maybe I don't know enough about Antonio's 80s career, but he seems a little more, I don't know, kind of like wild and... Yeah, maybe not in the them. literal like details of the way he's living or the drug use but in the sense of you had this intense sort of early collaboration with an actor and a director and then there was this lengthy like, sort of period where you didn't speak which is not just do you know did they have like a falling out i think i think 
Almodovar had more intense falling outs with like other collaborators, like for sure, like actual Carmen Maura. Yeah, I think think she was the like most intense falling out. I think with Banderas, it was more like Banderas went to the States to be an American Hollywood actor. So they sort of like were split geographically. There's a quote where Antonio Banderas is talking about how reading the script helped him understand Almodovar, who is like kind of a very private person mm-hmm. and he said it was it was surprising to me when i received the script to see things that i didn't know i didn't know that he wanted to say these things and i didn't know that he wanted to just apologize i didn't know that he wanted to close that wound and i didn't know that there was even a wound there mm. so i think there if they had a falling out maybe it was less of tempestuous in the way that the movie presents it or the way that some of Almodovar's falling outs were. But I think it is pulling from that history. Like, I think Hmm. Banderas has referred to the Alberto character as like a Frankenstein creation of various actors and actresses that Almodovar worked with. God, the intensity of just like doing this project. Right? I mean, I know a lot of people write self, (gasps) write autobiographical projects, but God, just like Directing Antonio Banderas through this material that in a way kind of comments on a dynamic that existed between you and Antonio Banderas that you may never have acknowledged or talked about. (laughs) That's crazy. It's really wild. Yeah. And it just it like it is interesting, like what all goes unspoken there. I just think something else that on this second watch, I was like that I'm just loving about this movie. I mean, frankly, like what what I mentioned about um. That detail, that little meta detail of the director character saying, like, it's not interesting when people cry. It's interesting when people fight back the tears. And this is a movie that, at least on this watch, maybe I'm just, like, emotionally stirred up lately. But I was so emotional watching so much of this movie in a lot of different ways. It just pulled on all these different heartstrings of mine. And there is not one, like explosive outburst of emotion in the film like i don't think you see like tears roll down anyone's Mm -hmm. face it's very restrained yeah the whole movie i would very much describe as restrained and again not not to keep comparing and contrasting with the 80s movies but you sure wouldn't call women on the verge of a nervous breakdown restrained it's like explosively outlandish and it just just all of these like these like meta onion layers here i just find them so so compelling Well, does the Alberto Salvador stuff like work for you? Because I think Will and I are both describing like the early parts of the movie don't fully work and then it kicks into high gear. Ned, Mm. do you feel like you have a different experience with the movie? I think it kicks into a higher gear. I mean, there's no doubt that for me, the highlight of the movie is his reunion with Federico. And I I, I also enjoy the, the flashbacks. I don't know. I mean, for me... It's just so clear that that one part is the is the highlight for me, but everything else from is is kind of working. Like I don't actually have a hierarchy of like this part isn't working, this part is working. Less it's not than like hours. you're watching and you're like I'm not fully on board. You're kind of on board from the beginning, and then it yeah. just keeps getting better. Yeah, I'd say so. The emotion just just builds in me. That's that I'd say would be my experience of it. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, I also find the the heroin usage as a plot. Like I mean, I'm not riveted by it, but I think. I just identified, particularly for me, it was it was the moment where he sees that Federico is coming over and he's about to smoke up again, and then he pauses and blows it away. And that that moment of self medicating for anxiety or for social anxiety resonated with me. I mean, it's just interesting to watch this movie as as I think I think Caroline, you said about the scene where where they you had this reunion, like. 
they genuinely have this energy of people who are old, who have like lived through a lot, who have like gone through like multiple significant chapters of their life. As a 32-year-old, I feel like I'm like just beginning to taste some of the things sure. that are like thematically central to this. We have, you know? We're on our like second layer of the onion as opposed to our fourth or fifth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just on the second layer of the onion, but I'm starting to recognize, I say like 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 self-medicating for anxiety is something that I feel like I and my community peers can recognize. I'm just beginning to understand what chronic pain is. I'm just beginning to understand what like sure. truly long-term relationships are. It just makes me feel things, but I, I, I wonder how this movie will continue to age for me. I don't know. I think what I appreciated more on a second viewing was if we stick with this like onion layer metaphor, mm-hmm. thinking about each layer being a little bit more surface because it opens up and it's like the main issue is his chronic pain. And that's kind of all he's focused on. But then you kind of peel that layer back and it's like the main issue is he's he had these tumultuous professional relationships and he's like okay maybe that was my main problem but then you peel that layer back and it's like i have this fundamental romantic wound that maybe i never got over and then that's the main layer but then you peel Mm -hmm. that back and then all of a sudden like it's basically an hour and 20 minutes into this two-hour movie where present day salvador is finally like oh yeah my mom died four years ago and i think i'm maybe not over that like it comes so late that that is like a core layer. And I would maybe even argue that then there's a layer beyond that that's about this like his sexuality and this like really small vignette that comes so much later in the movie that I remembered of his mm-hmm. like first desire as he calls it in his play. But this like moment he has a, as a kid where there was this local village, you know, young man that he like saw naked. And this was like a first like awakening for him, which in classic Almodovar fashion is like heightened to him literally passing out when, when he sees him, which is very charming. But it's like maybe that's it's like there it almost feels like the sexuality and the mom is like those two facets and like maybe how they intersect in the subtext that never becomes text. Like that's the core of the onion more than any of the the layers that have come before it. Mm-hmm. Totally. Well, how did how did you feel about these this early like whatever sexual awakening element of the film? Yeah, no, I think you put it, I think you put it beautifully. Um I definitely yeah, I definitely thought that was like kind of more of more of the the core heart of the story of of about his mother but then also about his kind of burgeoning homosexuality. When he first sees him when he's like whitewashing a wall and he just has that yeah. moment where he stops and stares at him. I was like, "Oh, oh my gosh." And and it's so gently done cuz he's so young. Like I think the movie actually walks a, right. a really nice line of Exactly. It totally. Like does. it's not even fully sexual because he's a little kid. Yeah, he doesn't even know what it is. It's just like he he's he's speechless. He's he's drawn in and he doesn't really totally understand why and Oh boy, do I relate to that one. Yeah. Yeah. God, I wish that this wasn't like topical right now. And I don't really want to discuss like current events, but there's like there's there certainly is like a national debate that involves a lot of like extremely inane and reductive thinking about like when and how and what kind of like the process of sexual development for young children is, which I think is just like so divorced from reality mm-hmm. and just like leaves no room for nuanced things like this. Like even at a very young age, you have these moments that like they don't mean anything until you look back at them like years and years mm-hmm. later, but they but they do then mean something. And I and and, and like I would resist even specifying like what it is that like like articulating what it is they mean. But I think this movie does a good job of showing you things, not in a way that says like and the meaning of X is Y, 
but it just lays them out in this tapestry as memory tends to work and allows you to kind of shine the light through them. Mm-hmm. And I think the way they're arranged is really beautiful. Well, and it's interesting too, if we're thinking about, again, this is like more of a second viewing rewarding thing. And you had mentioned this, Will, but if we're thinking about like Salvador is living his life, he's dealing with the pain, he's dealing with the actor, he's dealing with the lover, but then what he goes to finally make his movie about is his mom in this like first, whatever, romantic awakening is interesting that he gets to that realization of like, you know, he doesn't make a movie about reconnecting with an ex-lover or dealing with a tumultuous professional relationship. Like he goes Mm -hmm. back to this very core of who he is and all of these factors that shaped him and like living in a cage and having to go to the seminary school and just like all of these elements. But in, in, in a way, those are like the least unpacked elements of the movie of pain and glory, you know what I mean? But they feel like in the fictional movie that he's making within the movie, those are the central issues. Yeah. And it it didn't really hit me until this second viewing how much like, on a second viewing, I could see a clearer thread running through this of like, he is preparing to be able to return to movie making again. So like, there is something there. And and it is, as, as you mentioned, Will, there is this sort of bait and switch where you're seeing memories of his mom that he keeps having but then late in the movie i mean i agree caroline they like they reveal that his mom died at a really interesting late time late in the movie there is a moment where you see on like the bedside in the guest room this photo of his mother and father that matches the composition of a photo you saw earlier in the film but now the people are different they're much less Instead of Penelope Cruz and this other guy standing in front of a wall of I didn't sausages, even notice that. it's this Me woman. Too, yeah, yeah. So it's this like I don't know, just sort of more like two normal forties looking people. <laughs> yeah, and that's when you kind of realize like it's funny because it kind of meta comments on like yeah, people don't just look like <laughs> Penelope, Cruz, Penelope Cruz, you know, <laughs> they just look like normal people. And it kind of like, then I started to wonder only this time I was like, oh, are we not seeing him remember, but we're seeing him like Mm. conceptualize the film he's going to make. So it's interesting that that is kind of a runner through it. But I did find the movie satisfying even when I didn't really have a sense so much what the like arc was. Yeah, I do get why. Like, I think there are people for whom this film did not work. Mm -hmm. And I think the critiques against this movie are that it can be a little bit too restraint, maybe, you know what I mean? Like it's sort of playing its cart, its cards too close to the chest or it's too, but then it's also sort of being self-indulgent. Like I, it, there is such a, it's such a quiet movie, you know, for, for something that feels like for a filmmaker who was so known for being, you know, explosive and colorful and sensuous, like it is such a quiet movie that is made equally i mean it's called pain and glory but like pain and love maybe would be like the two things that are shaping it mm-hmm. yeah like it's it's almost so introspective and personal that it, it it could be seen as like inaccessible a little bit yeah well and i wonder too if like you know we're people that all came from like a creative background like i always wonder how much I don't know. What does a person who never really has come from, has never really worked in that way, like, what do they make of movies like this? Because to me, I'm like, director-actor relationships, like, totally normal, just a part of my world. But obviously, there's so many people who see films, or who write about films, even, who have not, like, had that particular inroad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, it, it's, it's funny that, like, 
I feel like when I was a little bit younger, like in high school, you know, sort of my sort of uh, insufferable high school film watcher quality would be like having to convince people that like the movies I disliked were bad and the movies I did like were good. And if you didn't like the movies that I liked, like you were bad and dumb. Mm -hmm. And now I'm like, for those people to like not enjoy this, I'm like, that's fine. Go ahead and don't enjoy it. It's not for everyone. That's okay. Uh, If you find it, if you're bored by it, like you're not wrong. That's fine. And also, like, I'm so glad that this movie exists and he was able to make it and, like, that mm-hmm. he, you know, you don't just get to make movies that, like, everyone can digest. Because, you know, I mean, ultimately, like, there is no such movie as a movie that everyone loves, you know. And I just find it to be, like, such a precious little portrait. And 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 to sort of say this, we've, we've, we've talked about this a bit, but also just about, like, the... Uh, you know, the writing and the filmmaking and all that. But like at the center of it is a performance by Antonio Banderas that I, particularly in the second watch, just think is so, so, so good. Mm -hmm. I am just such a huge fan of what he's doing in this movie. This was his first, he got an Oscar nomination. It was his first ever Oscar nomination, which on the one hand, when I first read that seemed crazy to me, but then also made me realize that really what he was known for, as we discussed with Will's film snob taste, like was those big <laughs> blockbuster action and family movies. And those are obviously not the kind of movies that are nominated for Oscars. This is quite a departure for him in terms of like his, his usual type. So yeah, I kind of understand why this is like the breakthrough in terms of the, the critics and awards side of it. Because yeah, it's, he's really good in it. Yeah, it's so, again, it's so quiet. He actually, so in that movie Life Itself that I initially brought up as like one of the worst movies I've ever seen, but he is so good in it. That came out in 2018 Mm -hmm. and he similar, I I think I hadn't realized that I had never seen Antonio Banderas just like play a normal person before Mm -hmm. until I saw that movie and I was like, he can do this? Like, this is crazy. And even more so in Pain and Glory, it's truly wild to just think of the man that played Zorro. (laughs) also giving this performance yeah and you know arguably he should have he should have been nominated for zorro i'm looking at the 1999 (laughs) oscars for best actor you've got tom hanks and saving private ryan yeah he's good (laughs) but (laughs) who are the other ones uh uh benini roberto benini wins for life is beautiful oh, of course of course roberto climbed on, climbed on the chairs <laughs> yeah that's right that was the year he climbed on the chairs ian mckellen for gods and monsters which i could not even tell you what that is about uh maybe uh the civil war that's gods and generals i don't know uh nick nolte <laughs> for affliction and edward norton for american history x i can happily see uh, Antonio Banderas going in there, but but this is a this is a movie that the Academy is ready to process, and like I'm so glad that he was nominated for this because yeah, it's just like who was it that beat him? Okay, I don't remember. I was looking at the wrong Oscars. I was looking at my fantasy I... Zorro Oscars. Let's see. <laughs> so this is 2019. This was so this would be yeah. So this was the year that Parasite won Best Picture. Oh God, this was our last Oscars right before. Yeah. This was arguably, and the way that I sort of in my mind believed that the Cubs winning the World Series gave us Trump, I'm, I am like, was the joy of Parasite winning the Oscar? Did that somehow <laughs> put us into a dark timeline where? <laughs> oh my God, best Joaquin Phoenix beats him for Joker. Oh no! Yeah. Oh no! That is criminal. <laughs> Get the fuck that's, out that's of a, here. That's a classic example of most acting. Wow! Wow! Yeah. Wow! 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 What are the other nominees? 
Okay, we've got Leonardo DiCaprio for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. A, Pretty good. A, a good performance, but not better than this, I think. And no. not harder. And not uh, Adam Driver for Marriage Story. Didn't see it. He's good. Good. Jonathan Price, uh, who we discussed last week, for The Two Popes. I liked that movie. The two Popes. Some more Catholic uh, <laughs> yeah, more. representation. Yeah. Well, because again, he so like last time you were talking about how it was weird that he played someone who's Argentinian, but he's playing the Argentinian Pope, which makes you think he must be Argentinian. He wouldn't play two huge Argentinian roles. Oh, you're so right. Why is why has Jonathan Price played two Argentinians? You say he wouldn't, but but also maybe he would. Uh, I guess maybe he would, but in this day and age, they're gonna. I I think he really. I, I think I remember seeing something or reading something about him. Being Argentinian. Oh, interesting. Even though he, I mean, maybe he yeah. is, and we maybe. were just unfairly. I don't know. All Wikipedia has to say is that he's English and English, but uh... oh, well, <laughs> maybe not then. Maybe I, not. I, I couldn't tell you. Maybe whatever. He was he was great in the Two Popes. Though. Is he? Okay. Well, I gotta check yeah. it out. I, I quite I quite enjoyed that film more than I thought I would. Yeah, better very than enjoyable. this. Is he better than Salvador Mayo? No. Before you say yes. You're wrong. And- uh, that's pretty tough. They're that's pretty close. Uh-huh. I don't know. I, I don't know if I could pick one or the other. Did you do all the nominees? Uh, Ned, what were the other? I think I did. I must have. Joker. You said Joker. Two Popes. Uh, Salvador. I'm sorry. Who I, am I, I clicked away to look at Jonathan Price. <laughs> ah. Joker. Two Popes. Uh, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, right. and Marriage. Story. Oh, right. Oh, and Marriage Story. And then Antonio. You know who should have been nominated this year, though, was Eddie Murphy for Dolomite is my name. Oh. I don't agree with that. <gasps> I don't like that uh, movie. Oh, <laughs> I like that movie, and I like that performance. Okay, but. okay, bring it back. You both have to say something nice about Antonio Banderas as Salvador Mayo. <laughs> I like his brows. Oh. I think it is, like, kind of an unreal transformation from this heightened, like, theatrical Antonio Banderas that we've seen in one form or another in every movie we've covered, like literally every movie we've covered so far. Maybe the early Almodovars were channeling it in a different way and were much more grounded, but were also sort of, they were somehow grounded and heightened at the same time. They're freaky. Yeah. But certainly Zorro, certainly Evita, certainly Desperado Mm -hmm. were all so heightened and theatrical. Yes. And then this is Pain and Glory is just this fully lived in, quiet introspective human being who's in pain and who seems to have i i think like a sense of like self-hatred maybe even that's Mm -hmm. sort of subtextual or frustration with himself or regret for the way he's lived just like but yeah it's like nihilistic yeah but it's never overplayed right like i feel like the instinct would be to do a big whatever Joaquin Phoenix and Joker (laughs) you know what I mean to do some sort of a bigger performance but it's so quiet and so compelling yeah but there's so much there's so much going on under the surface you you can feel the still waters running deep which is why it works so well um I'll also say that I know Antonio Medeiros is known for his earlier career being like this beautiful hunk of a man with like long hair and whatever i think he's never looked better than in this movie mm. i think he's aged like a fine wine that scruff he just needs to get rid of the elmo devar <laughs> the poof and 
and I'd be I'd be on board, baby. He just does stuff with his eyes and his eyebrows that are just like is very very appealing and very charming and very uh, I don't know. He's just so he's like watchful. I kept thinking of the way that he like looks around mm-hmm. at things in this movie, like this curious little watchful, like like frightened but still alive. I don't know. It is so crazy that Almodovar just made this movie about himself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That it's just like here I am and all of my regret and like weird passivity but also passive aggressiveness all rolled up yeah i think it's a self-portrait he should be proud of articulating in this way i also think the costuming in this movie is like talk about snubbed for an oscar this is the sort of thing that they always give the costume nominations to some big period piece thing they'd give it to most costumes but talk about costumes that entirely shape the feeling of a film like you could not find a better example than pain and glory and i will forever be mad that this is not the kind of movie that's awarded for costumes i would i would say this yeah art direction too Mm -hmm. both of those i would agree that they're very artfully done they serve the story super well and influence like kind of how you see the characters versus just like big and elaborate and period piece and millions of gowns and corsets yeah which specifically it was little women this year so there you go Oh, but that's great costume design in Little Women. I don't know that's though. Both. I've heard some good. I've heard some good critiques of the Little Women 2019 costume design. Hmm. I thought it was both most costumes, but also artfully done and served the characters and the stories and like told a, a story in 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 the colors and the such. Yeah, I like the Little Women costumes, but Pain and Glory could have been nominated. Totally. Do you totally. know what I mean? But it's not even the kind of movie that we'll get. That will get that kind of nomination. Let's bump Jojo Rabbit. Yeah. Yeah. Or Joker. Love that movie. Don't really remember the costumes other than a bunch of Nazis. Yeah, bump Joker. God, I cannot believe that that Joker thing happened. Yeah, I still haven't seen it. Did you guys see that they're making it a sequel with... A a musical musical sequel? With Lady Gaga? (laughs) No, I missed that. (laughs) Harley Quinn. (laughs) That's deranged. Which I do think is a very funny way to somehow piss off, like... Everyone, Everyone. <laughs> the, the, the people fans that love really don't like it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The original fans don't want this, and I'm not sure the musical theater fans want it either. Maybe it's a prank. Who knows? I would not be surprised. Yeah. Let's let's take our last looks at Pain and Glory right now. I have a question for you guys. That sequence toward the beginning of the like the animated sequence of the bodies while while he's narrating all his. I was just curious what you guys thought of that because I thought like stylistically really interesting but tonally kind of was a very different than the rest of the movie yeah. and never really came up again no. so i don't know yeah i thought that was a very interesting sequence yeah i like it as a just like i feel like more and more now people are becoming aware of the concept of chronic pain just as a, a thing that people live with and how difficult mm-hmm. that is so i like that this movie forefronts that so much and it's just very Sensual is not the right word, but there's like a visceral quality, I guess. It's like Salvador just needs to sort sometimes just like exist with all the lights off when he has a headache or whatever. I think that that little sequence does a good job of sort of setting up the logistics of that, but maybe more in the way of like Mr. DNA from <laughs> Jurassic Park. You know what I yeah, mean? Where it's like I'm very Mr. DNA vibes. We yeah. want to have a we want to have an exposition dump that's like fun. <laughs> yeah, like it seemed like almost kind of kooky, but like not. There was like kind of silly music, and I don't know. I thought it was it was like kind of doing the work of 
What am I trying to say? Like, like he didn't have to act so much the pain because mm. we knew it was all there. Mm-hmm. But without that sequence, like, would we really have picked up on that much of the crime? Like, I almost think like it was something he added later to like fix a problem. I could yeah, see I that, know. but I kind of like that then because I do think there there is a version of this movie that would sort of overplay the pain that would maybe be less accurate to what living with chronic pain is like. Yeah. So it, maybe yeah. it's the lesser of two evils in that sense. It would have felt like that genre of movies that's like, and here is a movie about Alzheimer's. Get ready for an Alzheimer's movie. You know, it's like we don't, those are like, even when that feels like an important story, you're like, what a drag to make a movie that's like whole point is that. And this this does not feel this feels like a movie where pain is like it's really central, but it never feels like it's to you know, to, to use a phrase like wallowing in it. I kinda like that sequence because I just like I kinda like something that's like a little messy and like off the palette. Like like just where did this where did this come from? Like why you know I we did learn on, on our earlier episode that like that Almodovar had this background in making these sort of like nonlinear, like almost sketch type movies, like very early on. And uh, and I like that he still is like he's making what feels a lot more like I don't know a recognizable drama, but it's got this like oh there's a weird there's a weird little animated intro, and I like his narration in that. I like when he says, you know, my head has inside of it inf- infinite possibilities for pain, and I also suffer from <laughs> abstract sorrows. It's just like the f- I don't know when you trust the film when you don't trust a filmmaker, things that like don't connect to anything else seem like a weakness but i trust the filmmaker so the fact that like he has narration here which appears at no other point in the film i'm like no i like that i like that now maybe i'm just being too generous to this film but yeah i was a fan there is a weird sense of even when he very late in the film he like gets the diagnosis for the specific sort of bone issue that's causing him to choke all the time it does go into a weird amount of detail about something that is like, you don't really need to go into that amount of detail about. It is interesting what, like, we're talking about all of these complex relationships that keep so subtextual. And then it's like, and here's some complicated medical information that we're going yeah. to just, like, spell out in detail. But I guess he kind of needed that because he needed to be physically better in order to start making a movie again. Yeah. Right? The whole point of him not working is that he's in too much pain. So they needed to solve some sort of medical problem. <laughs> Otherwise, why would he just start filming again? I agree they could have taken that out of the script. Maybe I'm just unable to be critical of this movie. I don't know. It just washed over me so much. I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I, uh, sure, that was fine. I just didn't look at any of this like, huh, why did they take that out? I'm like really, I just think it's just clear, like, I'm really in the tank for this movie, you know? I feel like there is also a potential, I don't think intentional reading, but one, I wonder if there's a reading of this movie that he doesn't get better and makes another movie. He, like, dies. <laughs> Because the the way it's put together, it's him on the operating table, and he's sort of like talking to his doctor about his next project as he's sort of going under the anesthesia. Mm-hmm. And then the next scene is the is the mom and the kid at the train station that sort of like cuts to the him filming it, mm-hmm. right? But like the way he's sort of fading out into sleep, and the fact that that's like the last time we really see him as like an active character. I don't know. It's a little bit like YouTube, like, oh, what if this is the <laughs> real theory. ending? But it yeah. is, it is, it's totally it, there's defensible. an ominous quality to the way he is sort of trailing off mm-hmm. that struck me on this time. Hmm. I did not, 
I did not see it that way, but I can see it in hindsight. I could see it that's, too. That's very compelling. Or yeah. maybe it's even like the movie that it, the like Penelope Cruz movie is all a dream and him making it is like a dream he's having while he's under the anesthesia, you know? Yeah. I think it's a slightly mm-hmm. more, the, the order of thing, I remembered so many individual moments from this movie, but the order of them was fascinating to rediscover. Like I would have told you that the little little kids sort of like romantic sexual awakening scene happened like way that happens like the last 10 minutes like I would have told you that happened halfway through and yeah so rediscovering the order and and particularly the ending structure of like passing out very abstract scene on set end of the movie was fascinating to me Hmm. I just love it just really hit me this time that the line is the doctor when he's when he is going under there that uh the doctor said he says I'm working on something the doctor says in sort of like casual doctor banter like oh is it a drama or a comedy he says i don't know you don't know that mm-hmm. and then like goes under and i like that that's kind of it feels like the last uh the last line of the film in yeah a i mean he says like cut after that but um feels very almodovar as a yeah. quality yeah i really i really enjoy that because that again it just like i think there were just all these i was really struck by the amount of flourishes in this film that felt to me to express just some like fundamental life truth and i was just like mm-hmm. primed to receive them and uh, was really happy to get to watch it there's another quote i found that i think is is antonio banderas expressing a similar thing where i think that this i think the combination of having his own heart attack then making the super contemplative movie that is reflecting on his friend and also kind of himself did kind of unlock something in him because he says like He's like, I've, I've did more movies after Pain and Glory, but he's like, I did like do little, you know, like I'm doing these very heightened things. And he says, I'm hungry now for movies that allow me to experiment a little bit with what I found doing this one. I don't know if it'll work or not, but I want to try. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if this will kind of be a turning point for whatever a Banderasance <laughs> where he's doing more. The Banderasance. The Banderasance. Okay, that's <laughs> we've got to we've got to put that word into writing on the Twitter somewhere. I mean, the man we'll is see. releasing a lot of movies this year. He did Uncharted, as you mentioned. Yes. He had some movie come out this year with Penelope Cruz called Official Competition. I really want to see that. It's like I'm a Hollywood satire. Oh, and that's like a mm-hmm. that's like a satire yes. of mm-hmm. awards season. I want to see that yeah, too. I want to see that. He real is bad. currently, I think it's just coming out now. Some what looked like a pretty B movie action thriller with Jamie King called Codename Banshee. Uh huh. He's got Puss in Boots three coming out. <laughs> Got to make that money. Yep. That's Which all just I, you this know year. I'm stoked for. And we know the net will be there opening night. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's, a, I didn't know this, he's set to be in the new Indiana Jones next year. They're making more Indiana Jones? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> they have to try to, they have to try to pull up out of the dive, you know? They have to be like, the last Indiana Jones was not bad. I think that's probably what they're at. But what if this one's bad too? Man? Well, then they will like have really, it's really bad. a double or nothing situation <laughs> when you do that. I, I sort of feel like a lot of his current slate of movies is still in that, like, just action blockbuster baddie genre. I wouldn't be surprised Antonio. if he's, like, the villain in Indiana Jones 5. Yeah. Or this film, The Enforcer with Kate Bosworth. I don't know. Maybe he's, maybe in The Enforcer, he's making, like, a, uh, like, those movies that, like, Pierce Brosnan does all the time now, where he's like, I'm an yeah. old badass. And it's and about I'm my midlife crisis. for 15 minutes, but the whole poster is my face. Yeah, we'll see. The man, Antonio Banderas likes to work. He might have the longest filmography. 
He's not one of those actors. He's not like a Brad Pitt or a Leo who's like, I'm going to very, you know, purposefully curate my career with these projects I'm fully invested in. Like, I feel like mm-hmm. Antonio's filmography, he'll just like, he'll pop up <laughs> in anything you want him to pop up in. Especially if it's Puss in Boots. Well, if he doesn't stay busy, he's going to get hooked on heroin, I guess. So. Yeah. yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> this movie scared him away. Yeah. I hope he does more things like this that show this side of him that I think has been was not so present for so much of his Hollywood career. Like, I think it's very cool to see that he can do this kind of thing. I agree. I I mean, it's actually hard for me to like really conceptualize how old he is, because I think his physicality in this movie makes him seem like this is Antonio Banderas in the final stages yeah of his life now he's only 63 you know he's really not that that right uh, i think he's diminished. 61 that's, that's even older than i thought yeah you would have said he was like late late 50s yeah well because like i remember the beginning of this this rewatch just seeing antonio banderas i know almodovar is significantly older than him but just seeing him i was like and then hearing that the movie that he's talking about was 32 years ago i was like what was it like 21 <laughs> when he directed it i don't get it yeah. i think so, he's like, certainly he's, playing yeah. older in pain and glory mm-hmm. i also yeah. think a hollywood 61 is like a normal 51 you know what i mean yeah, yeah. so he's true. got plenty of years ahead of yes. him i did bad math and i also forgot in my head i've really made it 2023 already i keep doing that and i have no idea why <laughs> don't don't but speed it up Ned. no i know we could no i'm in no rush to get there but but yes i'm i'm really hopeful that we get some more of this in the future. And so with that, we are going to say uh, bye-bye to Antonio Banderas. It has been so Adios, real. Antonio. And he did, can I pleasure. real quick say, just because my obsessive brain wants to say everything, uh-huh, he has uh-huh. directed two movies. I've oh. seen neither of these, but just to shout it out, he directed a 1996 comedy with Melanie Griffith called Crazy in Alabama. And in 2006, he directed a Spanish language coming-of-age romance called Summer Rain. So maybe one day we'll check those out and do a bonus episode on yeah. them. But he's got that in the wheelhouse a little bit. Yeah. What's what's the Rotten Tomato on those? Oh, great cue. question. He's also, he's got, oh, he's directing, did you see he's directing another Melanie Griffith film in the future? <gasps> no. It's called a Akil. divorce Yes. It's announced, Akil. Oh, cool. And it is about a young boy named Akil who is being hunted by the police, flees Africa, and takes refuge in an American woman's home in Spain. So, Whoa. lot to unpack there. And it's it's him directing his ex-wife, Melanie Griffith. So, and it's written by Antonio Banderas. Whoa. So, I'm so glad damn. we looked that up. Like Meg Ryan, he has a TBD future directing credit we will have to see. Do we get lucky? Will they be good? Will they be train wrecks? We will have to find out. We'll see. Summer Rain it has not had enough reviews to have a tomato score, but it has a 62% audience score. Huh. The Crazy in Alabama romance with Melanie Griffith has a 30% on Rotten Tomatoes, mm. but a 64% audience score. So who can sure. say? Well, the guy's Practice clearly- makes perfect. He knows what he's good at. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so with that uh, closing on the Book of Paponio, Caroline, would you care to tell us where we're going next? I would love to, Ned, because it is the summertime mm-hmm. here in the world of North America, in the Northern Hemisphere, <laughs> and I feel like it is yeah. summer is a time to chase joy, 
right? We have one day we will reveal the actor that we keep pushing back. We've pushed back like three or four times, finally getting to them. They've been similar to Will. They are another white whale for us. We will eventually get to them. But I wanted to chase joy, and I thought, I thought, what brings me joy? <laughs> just had the image, you know, of some. Some high school basketball players just dribbling the ball, saying, you got to get you, get you, get you, get your head in the game. <laughs> and that led me to realize that what we should do this summer mm-hmm. is a mini series on five films starring the legendary actor Zach Efron, which I am dubbing. I'm dubbing our mini series uh-huh. Zach Efron Oops All Musicals. Okay. Even though we will not be covering five musicals, <laughs> we will be covering a significant amount of musicals. So in my heart, it will be Zac Efron, Oops All Musicals, starting with, of course, where else could we start? His breakout turn in the early 2000s Disney Channel original movie, High School Musical. Ned, I will say, here's what I'll say. We'll officially be dubbing it just the first High School Musical. I will be watching all three. So just to put that out there. So I could, if you would, if you would like to take the journey uh, through East High with me, you're welcome to. Mm-hmm. I've also seen all of High School Musical, the musical, the series, so I can bring that context in. So my homework is High School Musical, but there is some <laughs> extra credit available. Yeah, there's an extra credit. Will, are you a Zac Efron fan? Does he fall into your film I'm, snob <laughs> world? The, those that Venn diagram is just two separate <laughs> circles. I think. Um, <laughs> I, I I've I've never seen any of the High School Musicals. Mm-hmm. Any, not even the first one, and I don't, I don't even know if I've seen a Zac Efron movie. I can't, n- none of them come to mind. Well, uh, you can follow um, along on our unsur- podcast, unsurprisingly. <laughs> but I am happy to look at him as a grown adult. He is. So the Venn diagram that does lovely. intersect is is like sixty something Antonio Banderas and thirty something Zac Efron in the Will Costa attractiveness along Venn with, diagram. Along with Federico, the the diagram is can get. <laughs> yeah. it. Can get it. He is in that. He's in every section of the can get it right. diagram. Yeah. That's right. I wonder how Zac Efron will age. If he'll be looking as good as Antonio. I wouldn't be surprised. He seems to have a robust workout regimen and uh, good skincare. Yeah. Isn't he doing some crazy show like Travel the World with Zac Efron or something? I think he like lives in the wilderness now. Yeah. yeah. I, I have followed less of his recent career, so I'm excited to finally figure out like why he had to zoom into the high school musical reunion from the cabin in the woods and be like, I don't have internet. Hello, everyone. Goodbye. <laughs> wow. Okay, this, <laughs> this I did not know about. Let's just say I have a lot to learn uh, over the next few weeks, and I really look forward to it. I do not know at this point, Caroline, at all what movies you have selected, although I can infer at least a few, and uh, there'll be some pleasant rewatches and some first-time viewings, I think, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it would definitely be my first time if we watch Firestarter, which Instagram will not stop sending me trailers for, but I'll be surprised if that makes your top five, but uh, I've been surprised before. dad, Zach Efron. Yeah, I'm not sure if you want to go there or not. I'm not sure my five have already... I've solidified the musicals. The other two are a little up in the air. If anybody okay. w- want to write in, rollcallig at gmail.com right. and advocate for their favorite Zac Efron oh, performance. Oh, he was in um, The Greatest Showman, right? Okay, I've seen that. He was going to rewrite the stars <laughs> with one... Oh. A, well, I'm so glad we got you on to our Antonio <laughs> series and we were not trying to... <laughs> before, yeah, so glad you got me on before the Zac Efron series because that would not that would not fly i don't know will five episodes from now you might be a convert (laughs) we'll see 
He might be an That's F-bomb. true. I'll give him a shot. Yeah. Who knows? We, we, we could start to see some new titles popping up on Will's, uh, on Will's Letterboxd. So, Four and a half stars, High School Musical 2. So, ah, there we go. So, um, <laughs> before we wrap up, Will, uh, thank you so much for coming on and having such a great discussion with us today. It has been a pleasure to have you on. The pleasure was all mine, friends. All mine. Yes, I'm sure this will not be uh, our last time having you over here in the roll calling corner. Definitely um, won't. In the meantime, where can our listeners find you? As previously mentioned, I'm on Letterboxd. And I have confirmed your handle is just at Will Costa. At Will Costa. Nice and simple. Same with my Twitter and my Instagram. Great. I don't know. You can send me a letter in the mail. <laughs> yeah, Will, do you want to just give out Whatever. your home address here on air? Uh... <laughs> yeah, call me, beat me if you want to reach me. I don't know. I got nothing to promote. <laughs> well, definitely all those platforms and Letterboxd in particular are the official roll calling recommendations. For all oh, our little fellow film snobs out there, follow someone who doesn't like all the dumb shit that Ned and I love. <laughs> Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Ned Baker and Caroline Sita. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy, and our logo was designed by Nick Wansersky. You can follow us on Twitter or on Instagram at Roll Calling, or you can email us at rollcalling at gmail.com. That's Roll, R-O-L-E. We'll be back in two weeks with High School Musical. Until then, I don't understand why they like me so much in Iceland.